You know, you think you're on that path, on that story, and then it reverses. Oh no, she's a spy, and then it reverses again. Just oh, no, real quick, she's an angel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to No Script an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Thank you all for tuning back into No Script. It's another week. It's another great script. Enough of the formalities. We're hopping in. This week, we are talking about The Mountaintop by Katori Hall. Yes, The Mountaintop, a pretty famous play. It was written pretty recently. I'm excited to get to jump into this. I don't think we've done a Hall play before, right? No, she's new to the show, at least. Uh, this this play is her most well-known work, and uh, somewhat controversial, depending on where you are in the world, and I'll talk a little bit about that when we get to the context portion of the episode. I was just so touched by my experience of reading the play. I just found it really, really moving, really compelling, as I was mm-hmm. able to experience it. Yeah, yeah. Before we jump in, though, I do want to take just a second and talk about our folks over at Patreon.com who have become patrons for us. Thank you to everyone who has become a patron of the podcast over at Patreon.com slash Podcast. And if you are looking for a way to support the show, whether you're a longtime listener or just uh, jumped in and are loving the content, head on over to Patreon.com slash Podcast to check out what we got over there. We love doing this podcast. We, we like to say it's a labor of love for us to get to have these conversations with each other and with all of you out there in the internet world, but alas, the endeavor is not free. There are some fees associated with uh, keeping up this podcast and also for whatever scripts we can't find at the local library. Um, and, and for as little as $1, you can be a part of making sure this podcast can keep going and keep having a good beat of longevity. The lowest tier is $1. You get act- access to a bunch of patron-only content over there. Uh, we have another a number of other tiers as well for you to look at when you're over on, on the site. So if you have a second, if you're wanting to contribute to keeping the uh, no script uh, listening experience continuing heading head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast and we will see you over there and we are so grateful for those of you who have been over there and are supporting the show what a huge blessing to have you out there we're just so thankful we couldn't we can't say thank you enough times thanks for being supporters and for those of you who aren't yet we hope that you'll take a look over there like jackson said lowest tier a dollar a month uh, something that we really think that you are at least getting a dollar a month in value (laughs) for the time that you spend with us so we hope you'll be willing to go check that out and now back to the script hey you got it back yeah, I did that one a little weird, just to <laughs> mark it down in memory. This is just this is the one Jacob did up. a little weird. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, the Mountaintop by Katori Hall, it was premiered in 2009, so it's just over a decade old. If we had done this play a few months ago, he would have been saying, this is a play that's 10 years old, so that might be our bad. We missed the chance for the decade review of The Mountaintop. <laughs> it was developed as part of the Lark Play Development Center Bare Bones Workshop in New York City. And well, then once it was through that development process, they were unable to find in, in the immediate a U.S. theater 
theater to go ahead and put on the world premiere. So they took it over to London. They did it in Theater 503 there in London, and then it transferred to Trafalgar Studios on the West End. And that production won Katori Hall a Olivier Award for Best New Play, which is the equivalent of our Tony Awards, and makes her the first black woman to win an Olivier Award So that for, for playwriting. So that was a pretty big moment, and this is a really interestingly um, interesting that it that it had that life in London because it's about an American hero and of course when it transfers back to Broadway that becomes part of the life of this play is that as Jackson will tell you during the synopsis portion of this it's about Martin Luther King Jr. and it's it it paints him as a very real human being with very real flaws as very, as well as very real celebratory values and that apparently it doesn't go over especially well in its initial Broadway run here in the United States. Samuel L. Jackson is playing Martin Luther King Jr. at that. This is 2011. Um, so that that's incredible, right? I mean, yeah. whoa. <laughs> Samuel <laughs> Jackson as Martin Luther King Jr., amazing. Angela Bassett of, uh, of course, lots of fame, Academy Award nominee. Um, she's most maybe most notably in the media nowadays because she's in the Marvel Universe. She's in, uh, of the Black Panther clan um in in her role in the marvel universe but she was the other character and that pairing is incredible i mean those are two superstars to put on this two-hander it doesn't run for very long on broadway though it doesn't have the tony awards as it did the olivier awards what i didn't mention about its time in london was that it also received a number of other nominations and such for olivier awards but when it comes to new york it doesn't get the same tony love and it doesn't get the same uh critics love and some people have speculated looking back on its time moving to america that a play that very strongly suggests an American hero is not at every moment of his life heroic, uh, maybe was destined to have some trouble in its initial runs in America. But it's it, it has had a long life since then. Of course, we're now past the decade. It played at regional theaters all over the country. It played in South Africa. It's recently been translated into Dutch and played over there. 2018, LA Theater Works did a touring production of the play. So it, the, the life of the play is still around. It's still it's still part of our cultural conversation. It didn't just fade away. So that is a, maybe a commentary on the strengths of the play, even in American society. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I'm excited to get to jump into it. Before we do, I just want to contextualize it a little bit and kind of lean into some of those themes that Jacob was hinting towards. Uh, uh, this 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 play does kind of play with the iconic image of of Martin Luther King Jr. and and kind of turn some of it on its head into kind of uh, representations, real representations, or maybe honest. But we'll get into that as we go. The play takes place the night before Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated. Um, it is right after he has done his mountaintop speech and he's returning to the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. It's uh, 1968, which is uh, right during the uh, Memphis sanitation workers strike. Yeah, this is a this is a moment for Martin Luther King Jr. and the movement in general. They're at this crux of the civil rights moment where Martin Luther King Jr. is interested in bringing in different pieces of the injustice in America. 
I think it's it's talked about in the in our forward of the version of the script that we have, and then throughout the play, you know, he's not interested anymore in just marching down city streets and demanding that white only signs be taken down. That's part of it, but he's also got these other ideas too about poor people across America, unions across America. So he's in Memphis for the sanitation workers strike. Mm-hmm. Yep, and so he he finishes up his speech and uh, comes back to the hotel, and he's kind of crashing for the evening. He's, you know, we see him kind of exhausted. We can see he's he's got a, some sort of cold or, or cough that he's working through. He sends out his friend for some cigarettes and then he calls room service for a cup of coffee. He says he's got to do some more work tonight and uh, he needs a cup of coffee. And the person who brings it is a person on staff called Kame. And Kame brings the... Uh, <laughs> yeah, a, per, uh, a person right. on staff. Yep. <laughs> did you just lie to everybody? I kind did of... You just, I, did you just use the situation of the script? Right. Is she a person on staff? Well... These are all very large questions. <laughs> These are big questions, and I'll burst a lot of them I'll, right I'll at the top you, of this. she does claim that it is her first day on the job. It, she does? What uh-huh. job that is, <laughs> we'll find out. Yep. She that's that's fair. She says that she's part of the hotel staff um, and brings him a cup of coffee. And what ensues is pretty much a one act of their uh, their conversation through the night, which uh, continues on. And through it, we see quite a bit of interaction between them. When some of the behavior that Jacob was talking about um, of of Dr. King is. You know, uh, a, a little bit not above board. <laughs> He's definitely flirting with Kame. He's uh, trying to... Uh you know he's 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 enjoying her company certainly, and uh, there's certainly a flirtatious uh, interaction between them throughout. But also there's yeah she she tries to leave the room a number of times, mm-hmm. and a number of times he talks her into staying because she sure is pretty. Yeah. Yep. I mean that that's the presentation of MLK in this play. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't pull any punches from that, and. Uh, and and so throughout the play though I'll just I'll just kind of give you the broad synopsis and then we can jump in. We discover halfway through the play I think pretty empirically that Kame oh, is Yeah, there's no argument. <laughs> there's no argument. <laughs> Kame is in fact an angel. Um, That's who, right, she's an angel. She's an That's angel, right. like mm-hmm. like the heavenly being who is there to uh bring Dr. King home, basically bring him to heaven. Um she's there to kind of prep him for the fact that he's dying tomorrow morning and uh, she will take him to the next life. And sh- and so kind of uh, surprisingly, halfway through this play, it takes a turn to this real kind of grappling with mortality and with not getting everything you want to get done. Um, and and for the rest of the end of the play, there's a conversation with God that happens. Um, with and- God. With there's God. There's a conversation with God. Yeah. A play- <laughs> it's It's a fascinating journey from a pretty naturalistic start to the play. It's just playing as a scene between Dr. King and this, you know, hotel room service employee who's there and it takes a shift right in the middle basically to this this pretty existential uh uh walk down towards uh, dr king's eventual death so that's yeah, that's kind I, of the, the the breadth of the play 
you know, I, every once in a while I go on runs where I'll watch a bunch of Key and Peele comedy sketches on YouTube. Sure. Uh, I just, they're, they're so funny, but I, I don't like to watch just like one. Because no, they're so gotta, funny yeah. that once I get on one, I want to watch like 10 in a row. And recently <laughs> I watched the Key and Peele sketch where they are playing actors doing a community theater production of what amounts to a play that is a fictionalized imagining of the conversation that Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X had. It's actually that, that oh. conversation is referenced in the play. <laughs> and, of course, the, it's Key and Peele. So the comedy is that they, as actors, they both get into, like, because the crowd is so responsive, they basically forget the plot of the play and just end up making exclamatory statement after exclamatory <laughs> statement to try to get a response. It's quite funny, but it, it's also, it's a little bit of a snarky commentary on these plays that are fictionalized imaginings of a moment, you know, real people yeah. in this specific moment in their lives, what might have happened when this happened. You know, there's, there's a, a two-hander going around, I think that's Freud and C.S. Lewis. Yeah, it's yeah. a similar sort of thing. Uh, and so those are, admittedly, those are not my favorite plays in the world. <laughs> um, and so as I, I we, we programmed this script because it's it's awesome. It, there's a lot of great conversation to be had around it. Uh, it's a playwright we hadn't talked about yet, but I was I was I, I was hesitant <laughs> even picking it up like, all right, what is what am, what am I gonna get here? It's a fictionalized imagining of the night before MLK was killed. Okay, <laughs> right, right. what's this? And man, I was blown away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it helps when you don't go in expecting to love something and discovering that it was just delightful, remarkable, moving. I found myself near crying at mm -hmm. points reading it. Yeah. Well, certainly. I mean, I, I'll be interested to hear what parts uh, made you kind of move to that point. But like certainly the later half of the play, he ends up kind of just bargaining for more time, realizing that, you know, he he wants he can't he doesn't want to leave this movement um, that he's that he's crafting, that he's shepherding and uh, kind of just honestly begs for more time from uh, both the angel and from God. So Cam May is an angel. And. Yeah. Of course, we try to read the play as much as we can and get prepared and read lots of different stuff around it and, and experience the script a couple of different times. So when you first read the play, I don't think that the clues for that being true are all that obvious. Uh, I mean, they're there, but they're understated, and they sort of blow by you. For example, there's this thing with cigarettes. She happens to have the exact kind of cigarettes that he likes on her, mm -hmm. which is a little odd, but but she explains it away pretty easily. And honestly, a little early on, you start to go, who is this girl? Is she maybe some sort of spy? And before the angel thing is revealed, actually, uh, Martin Luther, we're going to have to figure out how we're going to say that. Who is this? How, how are we going to say his name? We're going to call him Dr. King? Dr. King. Or in the script, he's just, uh, his, his character title is King. King? All right, we're going to go <laughs> yeah. with King. So a King, he... He, he thinks the same thing. Oh, this must be a spy at one point in the script before it's revealed that she's an angel. Because she has some convenient things that happen. This, having the cigarettes that are exact kind that he likes. But then she runs out of those cigarettes at one point because they've been smoking up a chain in this room. Uh, props, <laughs> folks. Get ready to do some smoking on stage. Uh-huh. Um, yep. And then she m produces, from it just says, from within her maid's uniform, a whole fresh pack. Yep. And and King says, oh, what the heck, you know? And she goes, it was just a magic trick, you know. Right. I got a, I got tricks up my sleeve, basically. This pretty is kind much. of in a portion where the flirting is pretty heavy. So there's a, a pretty heavy flirting undertone to that. 
Yeah, yeah, and and there's there's more like little clues of that along the way, but I agree that they're not um they're not overt. I was certainly blindsided. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so they... like that little clue, this weird thing that happens with the cigarettes, only on the back end do you pick it up and go uh, not on the back end, I mean, only on re-experiencing the play do you find those cuz you go, "Oh, of course." Well, she right. just she just had them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or like at one point she talks about how uh, because they're smoking and drinking in this hotel room, she's, quote, going to get in trouble with the boss. Right. You know? <laughs> of course, we think at the first experience of the show, she's talking about, like, the hotel manager. Yeah. And then when you read it again, you're like, oh, God. Oh, oh God. Oh, 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 she's talking about God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's part of the thing that makes it so, uh, I think, so uh, shocking when it happens is that both of these people are behaving in ways that, A, we don't expect of... Um, an angel and and b we don't expect of this iconic version of uh dr king that we have in our minds um and so so the whole i think the whole beginning of the play sets us off foot in such a such a distinct way um a just because we don't know she's an angel but (laughs) just watching dr king kind of behave in this way that we're not used to necessarily being exposed to in his story he's a very he's very flirtatious with her they kind of trade back and forth this uh this uh somewhat irreverence he draws the line at god in the play like he's not irreverent about god all that often but there is an an irreverence about them both which Um, is interesting that he tries to draw the line there because he doesn't feel like what the angel who knows god is saying about god is appropriate to say about god (laughs) and he doesn't know she's an angel at that point but once you do it's like that's pretty fun Uh (laughs) who are you to draw the line there right (laughs) Yeah, but but he has this. I mean, for 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 much of the play, you're kind of I'm I'm at least having having read it are kind of on your back foot for a lot of the play until really the last third of the play. You you I felt like I was starting to to follow along, but it does a marvelous job at keeping you on your toes, guessing what's going on, and then surprising you with more information all all the way through. That's right, and the play is short, so that's helpful. There's not you don't have to carry off a sustained deception, or maybe a different way of saying it is that there, it, because it's a short play, the amount of times the the percentage of the play where they can reveal new information is higher, because there's a you know only a limited amount of new information to reveal. But when the play is shorter, you get to reveal new information you know within a shorter time frame. So it feels very much like new thing after new thing after new thing. But but I do think you're right that. Because the because the first half of the play where we don't know Kame is an angel, because the first half of the play presents such a a uh, a unique, a particularly um, a particularly human, a particularly flawed vision of King, you sort of start to expect that that's the play you're seeing. You know, like. You, you read and you see him flirt with her. He, uh, at several points in the play, kind of gives her a pretty, pretty obvious once-over, you know what I mean, with his eyes. He, at one point, she bends over and he comments on it. He's constantly calling her pretty, like I've said, constantly asking her to stay. At one point, his wife comes up and on the phone in front of her, he lies to his wife. I mean, because that's the experience, that at least one of the things the playwright is presenting in the character of Dr. King, you, at least I, started to live in this world of, oh, that's the play I'm watching. I'm watching a play about how Martin Luther King Jr. was flawed. And so then when it also becomes a play about God and the universe and the the course of the universe towards change, 
that that felt like it very much came out of the blue. Yeah, it and it comes out of the blue so uh, so interestingly too. The moment that it happens is uh, uh, fear is is a kind of a big theme in this play. Fear uh, rears its head in multiple areas. Um, one of the ways, though, is uh, with Dr. King's fear of the storm that is happening outside. There's a big rainstorm that turns into a snowstorm in April in Memphis, Tennessee. Interestingly, um, historical fact that actually yeah. happened. And uh-huh. uh, it, the the playwright in some interviews talks about how it's really convenient to use things that actually happened that also feel miraculous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's and it, and it certainly played off that way. And he he like he's having a kind of visceral reaction to the thunderstorm outside. Um, he's he kind of we're getting the sense that there's some some sort of either trauma in the past or thing that he's anxious about. He certainly has a full-out panic attack or something of of, of some sort of ang- anxious or panic through the play. And and in trying to calm him down, uh, Cammy <laughs> uh, like says his real name. That's how we. That's how the 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 first block falls into place. Is she calls him Michael, which was his name before he took the name Martin Luther. Yeah, um, he and his father both we learned in the play took the took the name at the same time after yeah. Martin Luther. Hmm. So that that like that's that's also the time when uh, he accuses her of being a spy, and so like he tries to figure out who in the who the people are that would know this information about him, and that that moment is just a it's an excellent way to tie in what we know about the story of Martin Luther King and and the people who were spying on him, and we're like, oh yes, surely this is a spy, and it turns out that the slow reveal after that point, after fi- figuring out she knows more about him than just anyone would is that she's the angel. It's just a good good use of tying in real life with the storm, with the spying, and in, into this reveal of the supernatural. Yeah, and in some ways it's it's an absolute reversal, right? You you think you're headed down one path, uh, you think you're headed down the path of a king and Kame are potentially maybe going to have an affair. Maybe that's the imagining of this play. Or maybe at the final moment he's going to choose not to so that his last night on Earth is, is immoral choice or something you know you think you're on that path on that story and then it reverses oh no she's a spy and then it reverses again just oh, no, real quick she's an angel <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> so so then what 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 is i mean we we talked a little bit about fear i i mentioned fear we talked about the icon versus representation uh our honest representation what what are the other themes that this play ends up, I mean, we talked about the two distinct moments of this play, right? The, the before realizing she's the angel and after. <laughs> um, well, I, I think that the way that you just said it maybe encapsulates lots of those things sort of together. One of the major uh, propositions of the play is that the icon of someone like Martin Luther King Jr. is not the same as the person. And she accomplishes that by revealing many things about Martin Luther King Jr. Some of them we know are at least somewhat true. He did have an affair. We we do have tapes of him with a woman, so there was at least that part of his life. So she reveals some of that, maybe expands upon it a little bit, imagines, maybe, who knows, imagines him in that light. She also imagines him as very fearful. Um, we don't know exactly how afraid Martin Luther King Jr. was in his day-to-day life. Certainly living under the threat of assassination day-to-day-to-day, living with every city you go to, yards and yards of white people are just screaming the worst things at you and telling you how they're going to kill you would have an effect on the psyche. And so she imagines maybe that effect on the psyche is something like post-traumatic stress disorder, where when thunderclaps or lightning claps outside, it makes him jump 
makes him go. And I think at one point he even says, oh, I thought they got me. I believe that's even one response that he has to a, a particularly large thunderclap. So there's that element that she reveals. And you can see how some those are sort of both part of the same picture of Martin Luther King Jr. didn't have to be this strong, perfect person all day, every day. But then she also reveals lots of little uh, humanities about Martin Luther King Jr., like that he has smelly feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, smelly. Yeah, he has smelly feet. Uh, he he he's, he's he's smoking most of the of the play. He's. You know, I mean, everyone. A lot of a lot more people were smoking back then. That's not all that different. But, um. But yeah, you just you just find out these these small little things about him. And I like what you said too about the. Like if you think about this in the in the moment, uh, I, I went and watched part of the the mountaintop speech in in preparation for this, and and there's like a there is a clairvoyancy in that speech. So to kind of imagine into that space of like what was he feeling as he's you know saying that I might not be with you by the time that this movement ends, um, and and to to, to to imagine a scene in that space, we we get to see the stress, the the acting out of that stress in in this relationship for for uh for for King and for holding the fear of of assassination that's over his head, and and that fear is distinctly human. And in fact, one of the one of the lines that I caught. Uh, after I'd not the, not the first time I didn't really catch the significance of it, but in subsequent experiences of the play, I caught this line where um, Kame at this point is they're going back and forth about basically nonviolence uh, and uh, imagining that that white people and black people and people of all colors are equal as sort of the centerpiece of Martin Luther's uh, of Martin Luther King's particular vision. And especially in relationship to Malcolm X, he comes up at that point. And she, apparently, Kame is of the opinion that there, there, there probably needs to be some sort of violent rebellion in order for real change to occur. That uh, she gives a, a really, really striking speech where she's pretending to be MLK, but she's uh, not saying anything MLK would normally say. Talking about how you know Cain killed Abel, and our white brothers are killing us, so there needs to be a, a rise up against them. At, at that one point, there's a really funny um uh he says no we can't do any killing or something like that and she says something like how about kicking ass can we do that yeah <laughs> <laughs> and so the, in the middle of this conversation king says to her we are equal we we have a, at, at our core there's a shared humanity and she challenges him on that and says name one thing we have in common with white people name one thing and his response is fear everyone is afraid that's how he responds. That's the commonality. Everyone is afraid. And that's a interesting thing for any human to say, but it's also particularly interesting in light of the attempts on his life in the real world on the mountaintop speech where he's starting to imagine that his life may come to an end sooner than he thought. And then for this playwright to imagine that the night before his assassination, he provides that as an answer. That mm-hmm. at, at the core of humanity is fear. That's what ties us together. Whoa. Yeah, and he actually uh, talks about how fear is even like his own personal companion. His like thing that 
lets him know he's alive every day. He talks about how he, when he's standing up in the pulpit, he is feeling that fear and how uh, there's there's a really, really beautiful and kind of terrible line in here as uh, fear has become my companion, my lover. I know the touch of fear even more than I know the touch of my own wife. Fear, Kame, is my best friend. She's the reason I get up in the morning because I know if I'm still afraid that I am still alive. And so it with, and I think that, that, that fear is what he's leaning into is what he's finally beginning to break. The other thing, uh, break against the other thing in this play is he's writing, um, uh, his next sermon. And that sermon is titled something along the lines of why is America going to hell or why America is going to hell. And that is also has some basis in history. It it may be more legend than fact, but it is a true legend that amongst the things in that hotel room that are found is the beginnings of a sermon entitled something like why America is going to hell. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's and it's partially to do with this fear and this misapplication of of the resources of of America and 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 so he's grappling with this this uh, he's being lionized in the press for failing at this last march the march right before this uh, the events of this play turned into violence so so it's it's just this it's watching fear kind of corrupt someone kind of yeah. corrupt how I, I, how he functions. I think you're right to bring up that part of it too. He's a number of times in the play the fact that there are people being killed as a result that there's sort of a two-handed thing. One people are being killed as a result of his work, black people by white racists. Um, but then at the at the same time, when he tries to have these peaceful marches in the city, they and sort of end up becoming mobs. He said he claims at one point people just came out to this march that they were having to get themselves a new color TV. They just were going to use the march as an excuse to break in and steal a TV. So there's these two handed worlds of he's also afraid that the direction that the movement is going is not the same vision that he held. In undergrad, I had an opportunity to write write an essay, uh, uh, a research essay, on this reality that that MLK and his movement faced that part of their strategy in combating racism was to put their movement in a position where violence would be done to them because that would get them in the news. That would get them on TV. He, you know, he says I'm nonviolent, but at the same time, it's an undeniable fact that part of the strategy involves violence. Now, not violence on their part, but provoking violence from the racists because that gets them TV time. And so it was very interesting to look back at some of his writings and some of the interviews and conversations, especially of his disciples, that we have about how he was grappling with holding those two things in his head at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting then to watch uh, Kame wrestle with that in this play. Um, I think in some ways we kind of see King through the lens of Kame. Like Kame is kind of the catalyst for this experience. Um, her her advent into the scene is uh, is is kind of what what cues a lot of this this extra thought from him. He ends up preaching or the start of that "Why America Is Going to Hell" sermon uh, after he's realized she's an angel. So some of it is 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 she kind of pushes pushes some of this and and she serves as kind of the time clock for for pushing on this fear right because he's he's dying tomorrow <laughs> yeah it's it's an interesting setup for 
an imagining of how death works mm-hmm. um, that you know this angel not not necessarily, she's i don't she's not a representation of the angel of death although king does sort of refer to her in that way the setup is apparently that god has heard the prayers of king's daughter who has apparently been praying something along the lines of please don't let my daddy die alone right which that I mean, that kind of blows by. It's a little bit of a toss away in the script, that particular impact of that line. But whoa, <laughs> if your kids are praying that, then the violence has come home. And yeah. it's not they don't toss away at all the idea that the violence has come home. There's a, a pretty poignant moment where King is on the phone with his wife and you you only hear his side of the conversation. But it, she tells him that they've gotten another of the threatening phone calls and the kids can't sleep because of it, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, and, and he even like has this part of his accusation against Kame when he figures out that she's, she knows more about him is that she's uh, part of the people who are sending messages to his home and scaring his family. So, so, so that all, all connects in and she's, it, it, <laughs> The, the cosmology is an interesting cosmology. So she hears the prayers or God hears the prayers of King's daughter and sends Kame, who died yesterday, um, to to uh, do this one thing and all her sins will be forgiven. Oh, and at the same time, the imagining of the play is that God is a black woman. Yeah. Now, uh, you know, within the past 20 years or so, the Christian community in America has already had a particularly uh, outraged reaction when God was imagined as a black woman in the shack. Uh So it's actually not all that surprising to me that this play did very well in Europe where God is handled a little less uh, delicately, preciously. Hair-triggerly. Hair-triggerly. And then it, it maybe didn't play as well on Broadway in America where... People, I, I can imagine that the portrayal of God in the play would make some people very upset mm-hmm. because and it's a very interesting cosmology, as you say. It is, yeah, and and just and and to be clear, so that I mean, <clears throat> I guess I guess I have a little maybe a little too loose of a hold on on portrayals of God, but there is no physical portrayal of God in this. It's just people talking about her <laughs> that's right and uh, so, yeah, but even that right people talking about her yeah. kma is insistent that god is a woman through the whole play obviously king being who he was in the 60s refers to god exclusively as a man as a father and he gets corrected on that a number of times and then at some point later in the play as we've already said he has a phone call with god and discovers in fact that it's a her and it's a black woman he that i bring that up because that's a point that he brings up he leans over to kma and says is she and Kame yeah. goes, a proud black woman. Yes, yep. she is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I agree. That could have been part of the 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 kind of uh, issues with the play. But it's a fascinating dynamic to add into the play, and it yeah, it really so cool. Yeah, it switches it switches the the, the relationship certainly, and it and it in general, God is a very. Uh, She's a very hands-on God. <laughs> you know, we we find out that uh, she's not in the office, as it as it were, for the call that Kame makes because she's out raining, making rain over forest fires. So so very very involved God, very active God, a God who makes time for once once uh, Dr. King gets on the phone with her. There's time made to talk to him for a little bit at least. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, they do. They have a conversation. That's uh that's a beautiful part of the portrayal of God that that King could pick up a phone and have a conversation with the living God is amazing. But of course, all this plays into this theme that we brought up a couple of times of icon versus reality. Because really all the characters in the play, even many of the offstage ones, have this something the the way that they've been turned into an icon, the way that they've been made into a statue or a hero or a legend is not representative of their reality. We've talked about some of the ways where, at least in this portrayal, King is not every bit the perfect human being that he is memorialized as, that he, as a real human being, has some flaws. And that is also then true of an imagining of God. God is not this, you know, white, brown-haired uh, uh, older gentleman who sits up on his throne and strokes his long beard. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is not the imagining of God in the play. There's a difference between the icon and the reality. It's also true of angels, right? As a representative of angels, Kame is nothing like the icon or the statue <laughs> that people have made of angels. Her wings are not wings. They're her breasts. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, King says, where are your wings? And she points at her breasts and says, these will get me anywhere I need to go. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, so it's it the, the the play throughout flips things on on their head quite a bit. And it also I think part of the this this last interaction or the final interactions towards the end of the play flip on its head the overall or the the, the belief that a movement is based on the sole work of its leader. Um, and I think that's the other thing that we kind of get this revolution around this, this turn of what we're expecting is, and, and what Dr. King is expecting through this play as well, is that he can, he's on a slow journey through this play of realizing that he needs to pass the baton. In fact, the last scene of the play is just over and over talking about passing the baton on. So it's the change from it being a movement based around one person and and kind of uh, belief in this iconic one person, and and we get to see the the weak points of that through this play, and how impossible it is for one person to live up to that, to releasing it out into a bigger movement and the ripple effects that that one person will have on the wider sphere. Yeah, let's talk about that. So this the the final image or. The, one of the final images of the play is MLK has accepted that he is in fact going to die tomorrow. He has given up his attempts to change that through various tactics. And now what he's asking is, can I see the future? Can I see how things pan out? Kame has tried to assure him a number of times that just because you're gone doesn't mean the work is not going to continue. There will be people there to carry the torch, to pass the baton. You are not the end of this. And he is fearful of that. We talked about fear a lot, how it plays up in this play. He's afraid of what's going to happen if he's dead. And that is also rooted perhaps in some vanity that he's called out on a number of times through the play. But ultimately, he says, can I see, can I see what's going to happen? Can I see the future? Kamei says, yes, after some negotiation. Right. And the <laughs> stage direction is basically like she takes him to the mountaintop. Mm-hmm. And she does, I don't know, Jackson, would you call it like a slam poem? I would or think a, a spoken word piece. I, I agree with that completely. It's it's a it's a, it's absolutely a some sort of spoken poetry piece um, with a lot of rhythm and uh, yeah, a la yeah. we didn't start the fire. It's a number of mm-hmm. different um, things that will happen over the next fifty six, actually up to sixty years 
uh, well, 50 years, I guess, because this was a decade ago. Um, uh, uh, 40 to 50 years after uh, uh, King dies. And it's it, it talks about a lot of different things. You know, here's some examples. The Prince of Peace shot his blood stains the concrete outside room 306. This would be a description of uh, King's death. Uh, ba- and then she just goes on. I'll just read a short section that just as so you can get the sense of all kinds of the different things she says. Bayard Rustin, Stonewall Riots, Andrew Young, Julian Bond, Bob Marley, Redemption Songs, Angela Davis, Asada Shocker, Afro Picks, Black Raised Fist, Olympics. Throughout all of these stanzas of this thing that is like a poem, um, of of kind of coursing just brief snippets of the next 40, 50 years, uh, between all the stanzas is this stage direction, the baton passes on. Hmm. It is a stage direction, I believe, and it, I don't believe it's meant to be said. But I don't know... I don't really have a sense of, uh, outside of the reader experience, how that is represented visually in a production of this play. The baton passes on is the stage direction. And then at the end of the spoken word piece, which ends with uh, the children of the Nile and nuclear eight mile, black picket fences and genus six, American flags and black presidents. And then it says the baton passes on, the baton passes on, the baton passes on, the baton passes on. So it repeats four times. Mm-hmm. I'm. Uh, do you have any sense, Jackson? Better than me? You know, um, I I think you have to ask some interesting questions about that line. I think it is. It feels like a motif of a slam poem to me. So I would be I would be tempted to um, to uh, make the make them spoken. Uh, the, the, in, in, I agree that in the script you're looking at them and they, they are in italics like the rest of the stage directions. It is notable that uh, they are still separated from the beats of the stage directions. There are stage directions within it kind of specifying some of the some of what is passing or, or projecting. There's projections going at this time of all these different things she's saying. Um I I, I don't I That's don't know. That's a what good the, point. I you know, this is this is getting into the nitpick of how you publish and print a script but Mm -hmm. um as i'm looking back through the script every every other stage direction i can find that's not uh uh basically an instruction on how to say a line every other full stage direction is uh there's a line break between the piece of dialogue and then there's a line break and then the stage direction then a line break there's lines between all those pieces whereas where it says the baton passes on in amidst the poetry the baton passes on the actual english language of it is still connected to the stanza there is no line there's no gap between the end of the stanza and the what i thought was maybe a stage direction but maybe the italics are an emphasis a way to emphasize the saying it i'm not i'm not sure yeah, I'm not sure either. I think I think my knee jerk would be to make it an emphasis and try to figure out a way to creatively do that, whether that's with the projections or figuring out some way to. She's she's kind of a disembodied voice for part of this. Um, she she fades away into the background as King is left with these projections and her voice uh, speaking over him. So it it could be a call to figure out a way to make those batons passes on special. Um, I don't. I but I I agree. I don't think if they're a stage direction, they're they're sadly lost to the scene. <laughs> I don't. I, I don't know that an image of a baton passing as part of the projections is necessarily a uh, enough to to land that theme repeat. Yeah, you you almost. I mean, it's a two hander, and that's part of the attraction of the play for production houses. You only need two actors to do it. But it'd be so fun as a director to have the freedom to have. Uh, uh, an ense- a chorus, an ensemble of mm-hmm. 20, 30 people, and they 
you you light it so that you can really only see their hands and they literally just pass the baton one to another one to another one to another maybe even a big circle i don't know some sort yeah. of image like that that is that moves out you know back into the immediacy of not being just a projected image but a live action on the stage that is sort of the core of drama mm-hmm. um, but is still that visual capturing of perhaps what she's trying to convey with this like we said it's something like a spoken word piece yeah well and that whole scene gets so uh uh uh, ethereal almost by the end. So something like that would be really cool. It also could be cool to like uh, make this be an inclusion of the audience somehow. The last uh, Bondalog of Dr. King says, uh, has the included line, he's basically preaching out. Uh, he's giving one last sermon pretty much as he's about to die. Um, and, and one of the lines says, can I get an amen? I said, can I get an amen? And I imagine the audience is being encouraged to respond in that scene. So it's kind of this, this interesting time when we're entering into this magical realm of time warping that you could do something cool, like getting the audience to pass the baton around or getting them to respond with amen and breaking that fourth wall. It's a fascinating moment in the play where, where the rules are being broken. Yeah, there's no doubt, I don't think, that the end monologue, this is after this piece, and uh, the stage direction has instructed uh, instructed us that basically um, he's moved on into some sort of other world. It says, suddenly King stands in deep, dark blue of the blackness, trying to take his rightful place in the universe among the stars. He's looking out into this world, and then he lo- it says he looks at his congregation from the mountaintop. And begins a long, uh, extended final monologue that I think you're right is is almost undeniably at the audience for them. It's it's the second person monologue. You have wandered the desert, the flaming sands burning your feet. Later on, your time is now. I tell you now, the baton may have been dropped, but anyone can pick it up. If, later on, you are the climbers, the carriers of the cross. I mean, it's definitely I think a message to us in 2020 as yeah. an audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a, a visceral moment of theater that it comes right at the end. So you kind of get this this uh, go and do likewise almost at the end. The 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 image of the preacher telling his congregation, the audience of this particular piece, to go out and do something. It's a call to action by the end. And it's a call to action uh, based on what? I mean, is is there something in the play that is left undone or in pain somehow that the audience is supposed to take away and make different about the world? Well, I mean, gosh, the, the, uh, <laughs> All right, that could have been a, that could have been an obvious question. <laughs> I mean, certainly our, our current, our current climate leaves much to be done of this dream of, of Kings and the baton still needs to be passed on. I don't think, I, I, I mean, I wonder you know, it's, it's it's interesting to think about this play 10 years ago and think about the reception of it 10 years ago. But certainly if this play plays now, um, the need for this baton to keep being passed on is immensely clear. Um, yeah, I, I know that there is another edition of the script out, and I, I don't know off the top of my head whether it's uh, much newer than the this first edition of the script. But you sort of wonder, does the piece, if, 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 if let's say she were to publish a new edition this year, how does the 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 chant 
spoken word, whatever it is, end that Kim A. Yeah. says. Right now, mm-hmm. in this script, it ends with black presidents, but that was 2009, 2010, yeah. 2011. Things have changed since then. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you get the sense. I think you get a little bit of this sense of almost like a victory has been achieved. I think the cultural moment of this play is with uh, uh, President Obama as president. So there is, it does end on and black presidents and the baton passes on, the baton passes on. And then this final monologue uh, has the, has a very, um, we, we talked a lot about religion this episode, but has this very Mo- Moses moment of I've been to the top of the mountain. We've all wandered in the desert for all this time. We've come to Canaan um, and, and I'm not going to be there with you, but uh, you're all climbers. You're new carriers of the cross promised land is so close yet so far away so so at you know what at that time might have been felt like very hopeful i think now feels like yet so far away and uh and so it's it's acknowledging that yet so far away and trying to live into it the the last line of the play is in fact kame saying time and stopping him like stopping him in the middle of a sentence so you get that that need for the audience to finish the sentence, to pick up the work, to pick up the baton, and to keep leaning into that um, soon but not yet of of this this uh, this mission, this continuing mission of of Dr. King. I think I, I agree with all of that. As the f- final little piece of our conversation here, Jackson, this play has got so many amazing little moments, little images throughout. Maybe we can just ping pong some of the really great little pieces that will stick with us. One thing that will stick with me is the piece where Camay, she's been revealed as an angel. She's telling King that she is, it's her first day on the job as an angel. As you said, she had died then she had been murdered, in fact, the night before. And she describes the moment of her murder and describes being choked to death by this man. And she describes looking into his eyes and seeing his life, not hers, but his. And she realized all of the painful, horrible suffering experiences that had gone on in his life that had led him to this moment. And it's a it's a kind of forgiveness moment. And it's so utterly biblical and religious. It's a so, it, for me, it's rung the bell so strongly of, uh, you know, Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That That relationship, that imagery there was, it just struck me so hard. That imagery is 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 uh yeah it's it's full of like pain and she she sees it all and she talks about how she still uh hates him at the end but that that is the sin that she carries to God um and that God needs her to redeem basically is that the is 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 that though she saw everything uh that this it, it's a it's a, a white guy who she's being choked to death in an alley um and uh she sees all of all of his pain and and that 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 sight we, we get so much of her that that sight of perspective of her life she talks about her uncle uh coming on to her as a kid um because of her how how beautiful she was and this this you know dying moment as well she carries a lot of this stuff and uh and she's trying to trying to make amends for for the amount of hate that she carried with her it's it's a powerful moment yeah it, it's you're, you're right that it's a it it stri- it reminds me of the image of father forgive them for they know not what they do by contrast because you're right that she says I ultimately, even though I understood the what had led him here, what had caught the 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 circumstances of his life 
that had made something like this a reality, even though all of that, I still couldn't forgive him. And it, oh man, that that's that moment struck me. Mm-hmm. I love that there's a moment of a pillow fight between them. Yeah. That just like uh, like the again like switch it switches a pretty some pretty tense moment, uh, and it breaks the tension into into this this moment of playfulness, this back and forth uh, between them. They're whacking each other until the whole stage is covered over in feathers um, by the end of the pillow fight. And that kind of childlike playfulness causes King to break eventually. It's it's Ooh, one of the big breaking playfulness. moments. Childlike playfulness, for me, it, it's highly, I, I imagine it is highly sexual. Sure, they're, sure. They're in the pillow fight, then it ends up, they sort of wrestle on the bed in a tickle mm-hmm. fight, and they end up sort of face-to-face on the bed, and King says something to the effect of, I never realized how beautiful death would be, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And there's this moment where, like, is is King, on the night before he dies, going to have an <laughs> affair with an angel? Right. And what does that mean? But then he ultimately doesn't. Instead, he becomes a more motherly image. He collapses into her arms and cries he can't carry the weight, and she helps sort of carry him. Mm-hmm. The imagery of this this affair in general throughout this play is is really poignant. Um, and it's complicated, right? Like it's not like he's on the phone with his wife and kids while he's planning to have an affair with this woman to some well, degree. Yeah, and to, to, to be fair, we don't know that. We don't, we don't know that. Not, there's but... no, there's not, never at any point in the play is it explicit that King is apparently trying to seduce who at one point in the play he thinks is a young woman, later realizes is an angel. But it's... Heavily it's insinuated. comfortable the way that he talks to her at certain points. Yeah. And, and I mean, by the end of the play, you have moments like that, this kind of very sexualized moment where they're kind of wrestling and pillow fighting and eventually kind of lying on top of each other. And then uh, the final part of the play, the, the cue off to the, the vision of the future is, is uh, Kame kissing him. Um, so it's, it is, it is a prolonged imagery of these two having some sort of, uh, romantic interaction. <laughs> we'll, we'll use a general term as possible, um, to, <laughs> for, for this play. And I think it's, it's an image that, um, at, 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 at one moment, both makes you uncomfortable, um, but then also draws out this this poignant richness somehow. By the especially by the the end of the play, watching the collapse after that pillow fight. Uh, throughout the play, especially the early part of the play, King has is, says that he's hoarse. That's the word he describes for because of giving large speeches, leading rallies. He's tired. He's ragged. He's been run down. He's hoarse, and. Um, when he gets on the phone call with God, he's sort of aghast at how she sounds. And she, and then he, he, we only hear his side of the conversation again. And he says, oh, you're hoarse? You're tired? Yeah. <laughs> and I love the echo, the connection back, that religious symbology of, of God bearing our sufferings with us, that God is also tired and hoarse of the injustice and having to carry it. Yeah. Uh, as long as we're on on voice as well, I think it's interesting to see the moments uh, where uh, King switches into his Dr. King yeah, voice. his Dr. King voice. <laughs> That's like an instruction from the playwright. He takes on his Dr. King voice. I love yep. that. <laughs> and that, yeah, of course, and- that's a huge reference to that icon versus reality, right? The Dr. King mm-hmm. voice is a voice. It's a persona that is not necessarily reflective of the reality. There's that theme that comes up again. 
Yeah, yeah. And and also just the use of, of language throughout this play. They they clearly um, kind of trade back and forth different levels of uh, vernacular through the play. There's um, uh, I think I think my introduction to the play uh, calls it African-American vernacular English versus standard English or standard American English. And they flow back and forth between these and King then flows back and forth between kind of theological academic language as well at some points and kind of plays with language as status, but then also the ability to identify with each other using language. And who can forget the moment where God hangs up? on Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> yep. They're on a phone. King has become upset. He is very in very Old Testament prophet kind of imagery. He's yelling. He's angry with God for what is being done. And now it's being done to him. How dare you? Do you know who I am? And God hangs up on Martin <laughs> Luther King Jr. Yep. What a powerful <laughs> memory of a moment. Yeah. I think she's hung up on me. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a they play a joke, too, where Cammy says, maybe it was just a dropped call but of course cell phones don't exist at this point so uh, king says what do you mean how can a call drop what are you right (laughs) that's another fascinating thing is is uh writing the so it's written in 2009 so there's cell phones and the the kind of uh angel and god out of time aspect of this like she talks she she calls (laughs) kame calls heaven up and gets saint augustine this is a great sentence that i'm about to say kame calls (laughs) up heaven gets saint augustine on the phone God is not in heaven, but it's raining on some forest fires. So she asks Augustine to call God on her cell phone. (laughs) (laughs) All out loud to Dr. King, who's like, what's a cell phone? (laughs) It's just a great, great out of time moment. That is an encapsulation of the incredible beauty and play and imagination of theater. I mean, what a sentence to say out loud. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's probably all the time we have to talk about this particular script today. There's a lot more to talk about, but we we wanted to save just a few minutes to, or however long it takes, a few seconds, just to say, after talking about a script like this, that we have a particular perspective and particular identities. We're two white guys that live in 2020, so we we probably, we understand that there's there's a broader perspective and a broader conversation that needs to be had about a play like this. Uh, For our part, Dr. King is, is, was, will be an American hero. And presenting Dr. King as human with flaws does not take away from the reality of his hero, his hero, uh, heroism, hero, hero, heroics, hero, hero, his, his status as a hero. Yes. <laughs> and, and the continued work that, that the baton passing is, is, is still affecting on down to today. Um, I, I echo all that uh, Jacob said, and I welcome more conversation on this topic. If uh, you want to keep talking about it, find us on all of our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, no script podcast is the username on all those sites. We also have a Gmail, no script podcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. And seriously, we'd love to keep talking about this. Even if it's stuff that you think we missed or messed up, we'd love to keep having this conversation with you about this play, The Mountaintop. Absolutely. If you want to recommend our podcast to some of your friends or family, we'd love for you to do that. You can send them to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Podbean, where we're hosted. That's where you can find the episodes. One of the easiest places to find us, if you're one of those old folks on Facebook still, is that we post a (laughs) link to the new episode every Monday on Facebook, and you can find it there. Yeah, yeah. So until next week, when you see that link and we're talking about another play, I'm Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us on No Script. We'll see ya.